If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How much is contemporary Britain shaped by its imperial past? Well, that's a question that journalist and author Satnam Sanghera interrogates in his new book, Empire Land in which he examines everything from the objects in our museums and the subjects on our curriculum to the ways that we think about race and multiculturalism. I spoke to Satnam to find out more. So thanks so much for joining me. Um, Your new book, of course, looks at how modern Britain is shaped by the legacy of the British Empire. And we'll get on to some of those legacies in more detail through the interview. But to start us off, I wonder if you could just give listeners a sense of what we're dealing with here. Where are some of the places that we can still see the influence of imperialism? Well, my argument is that empire is absolutely everywhere. So, for example, it's in um, you can feel it in our language and that a lot of English words actually come from the empire. So the word dam actually refers to a copper coin that existed in India. Mm -hmm. The word juggernaut comes from India. The word zombie comes from West Africa and so on. But more than that, I mean, a lot of our businesses come originally from the colonial days. I mean, Liberties of London began by selling silks and cashmere shawls from from the east. And actually, the building itself is built from an old boat, which is called the HMS Hindustan. And the building was called East India House when it was first launched. Uh, Shell, big oil company now, began um, set up by one Marcus Samuel, who started off selling antiques and importing oriental seashells from the Far East. Um, there's cricket, of course. Uh, there's a lot of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in, in London, which is steeped in imperial history. Wembley Stadium originally was called the Empire Stadium. And the roads around Wembley were actually named by Rudyard Kipling. And some of those roads still exist. 
Um, I could go on forever. The Scouts actually initially, initially began, they were going to be called the Imperial Scouts. And the Girl Guides were set up by Sir Robert Baden Powell's sister. And the first ever handbook was called How Girls Can Help to Build Up the Empire. And um, I think there's millions of expressions of empire, but these are all quite small things. I mean, the bigger things are things like our multiculturalism. The reason I am here as a person of colour in this country is because some Britons went over to India and invaded it a few centuries ago. Um, I would say our politics is massively influenced by empire. The way we see ourselves, our psychology, our economy, a lot of our wealth comes from empire. So I guess my my book is an attempt to kind of measure it. I realise with the Black Lives Matter protests, there's been a sudden interest in imperialism and how it influences modern society. But I actually began writing the book much before that. And um, it's been quite surreal to see my niche interest become a massive concern. Um, exciting, but also a bit unnerving. And I'm going to ask a little bit about maybe the, the current debates and recent debates later. But um, I think that one of the things that draws you in about the book the most is that obviously you're primarily a journalist rather than historian. So you do give the sense that you're also uncovering a lot of this material for the first time. What view of empire were you given growing up? Um, I wasn't really taught about empire. and I don't think I'm untypical, you know. Um, when Tony Blair handed back Hong Kong to the Chinese, he remarked that he didn't know much about the history, which is incredible. But I think mm. that's quite typical. I met a, a columnist on another newspaper the other day who had a history degree from Oxford, and he said he'd been taught nothing about colonialism. You know, mm. throughout his education, he had to teach himself. And... Um, in my case, yeah, it, was, it, was very, it wasn't really taught. I mean, even when we did things which had potentially an imperial angle, we weren't told about it. So, for example, we had Remembrance Day services every year, but it occurred to no one to tell our diverse student base that actually there were millions of brown soldiers from across empire fighting in both world wars. And so we studied also the Irish potato famine, and no one thought to kind of illuminate it by comparing it to the famines that were happening in India at the time. And I find it incredible that I grew up and supposedly had a very good education and yet was taught nothing about empire. And it was the biggest thing, not only that happened to Britain, arguably it's one of the biggest things that ever happened to the world because of the size of it. That kind of leads us on to um, a point that you make in the book, which is you you describe British attitudes towards the empire today. Um, a term you used to describe that is selective amnesia. What do you mean by that? I guess we see empire in a combination of nostalgia and selective amnesia. So the nostalgia is evident through things like there's tourist uh, companies out there that offer colonial tours of India and Africa. The East India Company has come back. It's a retail outlet in London and other parts of the country. There was a recent poll which found that 59% of Britons are proud of British Empire. And also any suggestion in, in public life that empire was not all great is seen as unpatriotic. I mean, there was an illustration recently with the Rule Britannia controversy when Nigel Farage tweeted saying, the woke agenda is to make us ashamed of who we are. Kind of British empire history is seen as an extension of nationalism uh, or patriotism. Mm. And you don't have that attitude, say, in Germany, where they can talk about the Holocaust and, stel and still be patriotic. You don't see in Japan where you can talk about kamikaze pilots and still be patriotic. But over here, it's seen as kind of a betrayal to dwell on any of the negativity of British Empire. But I think the ultimate illustration of the nostalgia is the Indian railways. I mean, it's very hard to put mm. on the TV nowadays at 6pm 
uh, and not see a middle-aged uh, white presenter telling us that the, the railways were this great gift that the British gave the Indians. The actual story is very different. I mean, if you read Christian Walmer, who's this amazing railway historian, you'll find that actually the British built the railways, you know, for themselves. It was for military and commercial reasons and actually held India back. And um, I'm in the middle of this project, I, I actually pitched... Uh, the idea of a documentary that told the real story of the Indian Railways uh, to a producer. And he replied that actually, no, because viewers don't want their prejudices challenged. And that's generally the way I think the British see empire. They see their history as something they need to be comforted by rather than something they need to be, they need to face up to as a way of heading into the future. But at the same time as this, you've got this profound amnesia. And, and this is expressed in all sorts of ways. It's expressed in the way we don't really understand why we have multiculturalism. The reason I am here, as I said earlier, is because the British were there, you know. In general, I grew up with the idea that ethnic minorities arrived here almost uninvited with no link to Britain, but actually most of them came because there was a clear link to empire. You also see it in the way we talk about Winston Churchill, who is quite rightly seen as a war hero, but we forget that he was also an, an imperialist. I and mean, we very rarely focus on focus on that side of his work. And, and when it comes to World War I, World War II, the imperial contribution to those wars is forgotten to such a degree that someone like Lawrence Fox can go viral for complaining about the inclusion of a Sikh in, in the film 1917, even though Sikhs were there, you know. And I think there was a survey in The Guardian recently which found that just 10% of GCC, GCSE students at the moment are studying modules that focus on empire. And... In general, we don't teach it, and we have weird kind of nostalgic feelings about it. So, of course, as you mentioned earlier, the debate around empire has really exploded in the last few years. Um, and it's also been, as you say, very divisive. Are those two strands there, the, the selective amnesia and the kind of desire for protecting the sense of British identity, are they the two reasons that you see for this backlash against wanting to expose the crimes of empire? Yeah, I think that's that's a factor. But fundamentally, the issue with empire is it encompasses a load of other controversial subjects like nationalism mm. and race, power, colonialism, even misogyny. And so you've got a whole collection of controversial subjects. But essentially, on one side, you've got this idea that British empire is good and it's synonymous with nationalism and patriotism. But on the other side you have this idea that empire was evil, you know? And a lot of, we have a lot of multicultural communities with links, with, they remember their links to empire and they, they remember the subjugation. It's very hard to bring those two views together without a lot of tension. And at the heart of it, you've got this very problematic idea of the balance sheet. You know, this mm. idea that you can look at 500 years of history, you can look at the good and the bad, and you can come to a conclusion of whether empire was good or bad and it's it's historically illiterate really i mean you can't give a, a, a five-star rating to british empire like a kettle on amazon or something you know it's much more complicated you know i don't feel that empire was all bad or good it, it was just very complicated but you have very few people saying that instead you have people taking extreme positions that empire was all good or all bad and it's very hard to find anything resembling nuance I mean, your entire book is essentially the answer to my next question, but just perhaps to distill it down, you know, some people would say, oh, 
the past is the past. We're not responsible for the crimes of our fathers. Let sleeping dogs lie. I wonder if you could just um, explain what your response to that kind of um, opinion would be. I think we're out of time in history where Britain, through Brexit, is trying to work out where it is and what, mm-hmm. it, what it wants to be. And I don't think you can work out what you want to be unless you've understood your past. I think mm. the Germans understand that. And so I think we have all sorts of legacies, um, which I think you can weigh up because they are living things. And it makes us dysfunctional. I mean, there's some really good things that I would say. Multiculturalism is great legacy of empire. And I think we have a certain tradition of anti-racism, which comes from the abolition of slavery. And we have a very rich language and culture, curry and so on, which are positive legacies of empire. But then I think we have a particular brand of racism, which can be explained Uh by the white supremacy of empire in the 19th century. We have quite dysfunctional politics in the form of, um, you know, our response to coronavirus and Brexit, I argue in the book, which I think go back to empire. We have this lack of understanding about why we're multicultural. And I think all these things make us really quite dysfunctional. Um, I wonder if now is a good time to move on to some of those specific influences. So just to ask you a little bit more on that, the issue of multiculturalism, of course, you explore how colonial attitudes were almost transplanted to Britain and how that affected the lives of people of colour that were living in Britain. Um, I wonder if you could explain a little bit how you see the connection there. I mean, fundamentally, we are a multicultural society because we had empire. And that's a very basic point, which we struggle to comprehend as a society. But I mean, I argue in the book that the way, the way imperialism, especially in the 19th century, saw race, influenced the way racism developed in post-war Britain. There was a real fear of racial mixing. Sometimes it varied. You know, sometimes people really feared it, sometimes people were enthusiastic. But essentially, by the 19th century, there was an absolute fear of racial mixing. And that absolutely extended into, into 20th century Britain. And then you have the colour bar, obviously, in, throughout empire, um, by 19th century empire anyway, um, brown people and white people did not mix socially in India or Africa. And you know, there were special clubs where the Brits could hang out. They didn't work together and so on. And that colour bar was a feature of my life, you know, as late as the 1980s. There were colour bars in nightclubs, in pubs, in working men's clubs as late as the mid-80s. And even now, I would say, in parts of my hometown, there's certain brown bars and certain white bars that you you wouldn't go into if you're not the right colour. And then finally, you've got the issue of, you know, wild racial stereotypes. And um, one of the shocking things I discovered in the 19th century is the, is the extent to which the British developed racial general generalizations about black people, brown people, the Gurkhas, the Sikhs, and so on. And that is still true. I mean, even now, surveys suggest that a large portion of British people believe that certain races were born to work harder than others. And I would say those attitudes go straight back to empire. You mentioned earlier about how you believe we misconceived the question of immigration. And I'm thinking particularly in terms of non-white immigrants, how do you think that imperialism has shaped our attitudes to them and how we may have got that wrong? Yeah, this is the idea that I guess uh, black, brown and black people came on Windrush and after that. And actually, the history of brown people in Britain goes way back. Queen Elizabeth I was complaining about there being too many black people in London in the, in the 1600s, you know. 
Um, mm. And I discovered all these amazing characters I, I was never taught about at school. There's a guy called Dean Mohammed, yeah. you know, in the 1800s, who was um, who came from India, lived in Ireland, and then in London. He opened the first curry house. He helped to make the word shampoo popular. He became a, a kind of massage therapist to the king. Was never taught about that at school. There were hundreds of Lascars who were these seamen who came from India and then stayed in the UK. There were Ayers who were these servants who helped uh, British imperialists, you know, bring their families on the long sea journey back to the UK. Um, you know, there were former slaves, there were actors, there were nurses, sportsmen. I was taught about none of this at school, but I think we're in denial about the immigrant blood in our veins in this country, and it goes way back. And we're also in denial about how brown people came here in the in the mm. 20th century or why they came. Because the, the 1948 Nationality Act actually made people, the citizens of empire, citizens of Britain. And then some of the people in Windrush basically came as citizens of Britain. And I don't think they're seen as that even now, which is why we've got the Windrush scandal, that even British citizens could be deported. It's quite an incredible thing. And I think encapsulates our, our dysfunction and our lack of understanding to the imperial connection between our interracial communities. Throughout my life, you know, there's been this emphasis on how, you know, immigrant communities need to integrate, they need to learn English, which I, I agree with, they do. Mm. But no one has ever said, I don't remember anyone saying, actually the British have a duty to, the host community needs to remember they colonized, mm. you know, a quarter of the world. And those people then fought and died for them in two world wars. And they came over here to help rebuild Britain after World War II. And that connection is kind of forgotten in the, in the so-called debate. Do you think that we can still see the legacy of this today? Because people would say, well, we've moved beyond that. What would your attitude to that be? Absolutely not. I mean, the way we talk about race in this country is really odd. Yeah. I think the best illustration of how we remain dysfunctional about it is the existence of the word, phrase second generation immigrant, you know? Uh -huh. What does that mean? I mean, I'm a second generation immigrant, but I was born here. In what way am I an immigrant? The fact that I am still talked about that and I still get messages telling me to go back home just shows you how in denial we are about uh, why um, interracial communities came and resided in Britain. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I think left and right can get things from people they supposedly disagree with. And it doesn't need to be this poisonous thing that it is at the moment. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Another area that I wanted to ask you about was um, the empire's influence on British politics, which is something you discuss in the book. What's your take on that? I realise this is probably going to be one of the more controversial bits of the book. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's some clearly imperial events that have shaped post-war politics. I mean, Suez was the point at which we realised we didn't have the power that we did in empire. The Falklands War pretty much played out like a typical imperial skirmish. People have argued that Iraq has has played out in a very imperial way. The you know the handing back back of Hong Kong, Gibraltar, um, and of course I think coronavirus. The way our obsession with being world beating when mm. actually we just need to be average. That would be great, you know. <laughs> I actually found I think almost twenty examples of politicians talking about ourselves as world beating in this pandemic. And I think that goes back to an imperial psychology. But I guess my most controversial argument is about Brexit and how Brexit was inspired by imperial nostalgia. Um, I'm so bored of the subject of Brexit because it's, it's taken over our lives for years and years. But I don't think there's any getting over, over the, the imperial connections to it because, you know, often Brexiteers talk about us being a colony of the EU. And I think that goes back to the fact that we see the world through imperial eyes. You're either a colony or you're the empire, you know. There's been this obsession with global Britain, which I think goes back to empire. I would argue it all goes back to empire. The fact that we once ran this massive thing and we really struggled with the idea that we lost it and then the idea that we had to take rules from someone else. I think that's been very psychologically difficult for Britain. Mm. What do you see as some of the other psychological impacts of the empire, perhaps on what we want from leaders, but perhaps also maybe just on the public? Yeah, I guess I think Jeremy Paxton once said that, um, you know, we our politicians have a kind of imperial way of speaking. I mean, why do we get involved in so many international skirmishes when we're this tiny country? I think that goes back to an, an era where we were, you know, massively influential in the world. But I think there's other things like... Um, uh, our jingoism. I mean, like two newspapers, the Daily Mail and Daily Express, were set up during the days of empire in order to be imperialistic. And I think that tone has persisted. And the way they are jingoistic now is the way they were jingoistic then. But um, there's an argument also that we have this obsession with um, kind of failure. In that most countries big up their successes. But actually, we have this tradition of focusing on the terrible things that happened to us. So um, I guess Passchendaele is an example, but also, um, you know, us losing <laughs> various World Cups and so on. And I think I argue in the book that this comes down to the fact that we ran the biggest thing in the world. And it's quite hard for us to face up to that. It's much easier for us to dwell on the times we lost. 
Another area that you examine is the question of imperial looting um, and the vast amounts of, of precious goods that were taken from the empire and brought back to Britain. One of the biggest questions that's always raised when we discuss this topic is, is whether museums should return colonial artefacts. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most long-standing issues to do with empire. And I focus on two particular things, that, two particular expeditions that happened during the mm. days of empire. One was when Britain invaded Tibet for no particular reason, except that it wanted to collect a lot of artefacts. And the other was the 1868 British incursion into Ethiopia. And both of those incursions resulted in loads of items, which are still on display in the British Museum and the VNA and so on. And it was amazing to, to learn that not only was looting permitted, um, collecting items and artifacts was very much part of empire. The East India Company had a museum in their offices in London, and they collected at the same time as they invaded. But one thing I think is not emphasized enough in this argument is that even at the time, and Tibet and Ethiopia are an example of this, even at the time, there was outrage about what was being looted. You know, even at the time, senior people in government complained about it. The press were up in arms. And I think there's this idea that it's only now that people are complaining that all these woke activists are complaining, but actually it was happening then. And I think another thing that gets forgotten is that a lot of nations who want their items back, it's not about wealth, it's about mm. identity, it's about emotional things. So sometimes they're complaining about body parts. I mean, mm. a whole load of bodies and you know items from graves are kept in our museums. And finally, I think the thing that doesn't get emphasized enough is that there's this idea that if we started giving things back, the British Museum would be empty. Actually, this is just not going to happen. Uh, according to some recent research, the British Museum only has 1% of its collection on display. Even if it gave back 2 or 3%, it would still have a lot. And I think giving things back would result in incredible scholarship. And also it would mend relations at a time where Britain really needs good relations with the international community. As well as precious artefacts, imperialists also brought back vast qu quantities of, of cold, hard cash. I mean, you grapple with the issue of how much exactly, but perhaps instead it's more interesting to ask where we could see this money flowing into in Britain. And another question that's also raised in that um, on that issue is one of reparations and whether we should now make financial contributions to, a, you know, to pay off some of the, of the crimes of the past. What do you think about that? The question of how much of our wealth comes from empire is the one I struggle with most. Mm. I think I spent four months trying to get my head around it. <laughs> and it's mainly because economics is as argumentative as history. And when you combine <laughs> economic, economics with history, it's a nightmare. You know, <laughs> People are, tend to make quite sweeping generalizations in relation to that. I mean, people say things like, oh, all our wealth in the 18th and 19th century came from slavery, or a lot of it came from from India, and you just can't prove it. You can't, it's very hard. There's nothing like consent, consensus. But at the same time, there are there's loads of evidence in a smaller way of the wealth of empire. So Liverpool as a city, it was basically built from the proceeds of empire. Bristol was built for the same reason. Mm -hmm. um, a whole load of our stately homes were bought by people like Clive of India and Warren Hastings. Um, 
you have, you know, the share dealing in the South Sea Trading Company, which became a famous bubble in the 1700s. That was about trading in slavery. There was Jules and the famously, the Pitt family, um, which produced two prime ministers in William Pitt and William Pitt the Younger. You know, their wealth came from a, a diamond that Thomas Pitt, the governor of Madras, had bought back from India. And you see, uh, you see it also, you know, in our National Trust properties. I mean, the National Trust has uh, been the source of quite a lot of controversy right, late, lately when it mm. tried to explain the colonial histories of his houses. But he found that, that a third of his houses were had either wealth from slavery or had treasures plundered from overseas. And uh, the, the, the evidence of the wealth of empire is everywhere, really. I mean, it's, it's in that city of London. One of the reasons why the city of London is one of the world's major financial centres. And one of the reasons why politicians care so much about the city of London, it goes back to empire because it was set up to finance empire. And that influence still continues. The question of reparations is a very live issue in America. And, you know, it's, there are regular studies trying to come up with numbers for how much we should they should pay back to, you know, the Afro-Caribbean communities in, in America. But we are so far from that stage in the UK. I just think we haven't even learned to talk about empire yet. And so to start talking about reparations is, is way too soon. I think we need decades of conversations till we get to that stage. Well, that leads us on um, quite neatly to a, a pretty difficult question, which is how do you think that we should address our imperial history? Is it a question of more recognition, more education and more awareness? Or do you think that more active steps are needed? I think the first thing we need to do is that we need to give up on this balance sheet idea of history. I think it's mm -hmm. corrosive, but unfortunately it's got this centre of gravity of its own. It's the question I'm already being asked most. And yet it's not a question I address and it's, I think it's historically illiterate. So we need to abandon that. And secondly, yes, we need to educate. And there are some people who just think this is so poisonous that there's no hope of us ever coming to consensus on what to teach. But I think other countries provide an example. I mean, New Zealand has recently totally revised, you know, its education and it seems to be having quite a healthy debate. France, President Macron has said some very powerful things about colonialism and he's getting French museums to repatriate certain items. And Germany provides a great example of how to confront difficult history in that he has an art scene that confronts the Holocaust and Nazi history. Police uh, trainees are made to study Nazi history when they train as police officers. They have so-called so stumble stones outside certain buildings in Berlin, which tell you where Jews were kidnapped and taken to their death. It has a very proactive relationship with his past. And I think there's inspiration to be found in what they do. You bring together a huge amount of scholarship in this book. Um, you must have done a pretty humongous amount of reading for it. And I just wonder what a, a couple of the things that you found most shocking or surprising to uncover in your research for it. I guess the obvious things that were shocking were, you know, some of the massacres, mm -hmm. you know, and it's quite something to see how the British viewed Sikhs and how they sometimes murdered Sikhs in, almost for sport. Mm. And that was painful. Um, it was painful also to face up to the things I hadn't been taught mm. and to realise that actually, in some ways, my so-called brilliant education had colonised me. And actually, mm. you know, I started to see India through the eyes of the British by having 
a kind of, you know, a private school and an Oxbridge education. But I think the most shocking thing for me was the way in which British generalizations about Sikhs has shaped the way we Sikhs see each other. I mean, one of the ways in which Sikhs see ourselves is as a martial race. I mean, we are farmers and we fight. Not, not that you'd be able to tell that from my physique, but um, <laughs> that's the way we see ourselves. And a large part of that self-identity actually goes back to British imperialism in that after the mutiny of 1857, the British basically decided that some races were loyal and some weren't. And because the Sikhs had fought with the British, they um, decided that we were a martial race and even tried to explain that we had the perfect physique to be fighters. And we've absorbed that to such a degree that now, that's how we see ourselves. And I think Sikhs themselves saw themselves as a bit of a martial race before the British made these generalizations. Mm. But they are a large part of how Sikhs are conveyed around the world. And the same applies to all sorts of races across the world, like the Gurkhas. And the, ways, the way in which the Indian army is organized goes back to some of the generalizations that, some of the racist generalizations that the British made about certain ethnicities in India in the 19th century. Yeah, it's really interesting that um, you suggest there that the imperial state of mind was not just um, a British one, but also um, played out by those who were colonised as well. Yeah, it's it's quite a, it's quite a hard thing to get your head around. I mean, yeah. Edward Said, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, right mm-hmm. famously came up with the argument in Orient, Orientalism. And I found that book amazing. I mean, one of the arguments he makes or examples he uses is example of Mansfield Park and Jane Austen and there's a conversation with two two characters where one character says oh you know I tried to talk to him about slavery but he just completely shut down the subject and he uses this as an example of how the British you know colonized themselves other people Mm. um, psychologically and I actually studied Mansfield Park for A level I didn't enjoy it I can't say (laughs) but we weren't that theme of slavery wasn't picked upon. No one said, actually, the reason why these people enjoy their lavish lives in this book is because it's supported by slavery. And I I was amazed that I could have studied that book for a year and missed that point. And I think that is more generally applicable in that we miss huge imperial themes in our own history and in our own culture that aren't generally picked up on. Um, And finally, I would just ask, what would you want people to take away from the book? If you could convey one thing your readers about empire what would it be i just hope that people read this book and realize that it's not a war that empire doesn't need to be a culture war that Mm -hmm. we don't have to be at each other's throats i would i would hate for anyone to read this book and agree with every single thing i've said equally i think it'd be weird to read this book and disagree with every single thing i said there is such a thing as nuance and we can talk to each other. I mean, one of my favorite books on Empire is Jan Morris's Prax Britannica trilogy, even though she's definitely very nostalgic about Empire and I disagree with her conclusions. I still managed to enjoy the book. I even managed to enjoy Nile Ferguson's book on Empire, you know, which is not as extreme as sometimes painted out to be. And I think left and right can get things from people they supposedly disagree with. And it doesn't need to be this poisonous thing that it is at the moment. That was Satnam Sanghera. His book, Empire Land, How Imperialism Has Shaped Modern Britain, is out now, published by Viking. 
A version of this interview also appears in the March issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and includes features on the Western Front, Vikings Under the Microscope, the Medieval Queens of Jerusalem and the Tudor origin story. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the space race. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.